in worship, but by prayer, only by prayer. Oh Lord, as I looked up this morning to the sky and saw this almost infinite sky before us and thought about how all of this fits in the palm of your hands, how you are true infinitude, you are truly vast and great and there's no end to you, and yet you care for us. How we are sand, we are but a piece of dust and yet you love us. The very thought that your Holy Spirit, God himself, lives inside of our little people and you have a relationship with us, each individual. There's no God like you, a God who's infinitely powerful and yet intimate and personal, who loves, who sacrifices, even though he rules and reigns. There's no God like you. And here we are to worship such a God, to be grateful to such a God who has saved us, redeemed us at the cost of his own precious son. Amazing things that we, we never want to grow old about. We never want to just be blasé about. We always want to remind ourselves day in and day out, trials or in good times, you are our God and worthy of worship all the time. And so we, we want to be praising you here and tomorrow and next week. And Lord, we, we are here to hear your word. We are here to, to hear from you. Here's your servant asking you to help me expound your word, take every one of these words and, and connect it to the rest of Scripture and put light on it in a way that each and every one of my brothers and sisters leaved, moved, touched, changed by your very word. Amen. To the point that the servant disappears and only God remains in their hearts and minds and they leave changed because they've encountered God. And, and that is my prayer. I, I want it to be about you, and I pray it will be. I, I pray that this week would show the change that you've given us today. Amen. That this week, this month, this life, Lord, would show that we didn't just hear here to hear or have a good time together. We came to move, be moved by God. Amen. And, and that's what we're here for, Lord. We, we are asking you for that because we realize it's not about our efforts. It's about your work in us. Your spirit moving in us, and, and that's what we're asking for. May your spirit move in us here right now. So help us to be attentive to each syllable and word that you have to, to tell us and, and be moved by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The word of God tells us that our tongue, our mouth, is a powerful weapon. We can bless And we can curse. We can lift people up, edify them, really construct them back up from being discouraged, but we could also break them down and crush them and destroy them too. With this word, we can praise our mighty God and we could also blaspheme his holy name. And it is the tongue that is in the text that we are in this morning. It's all over these few verses and few words of Paul, it's all about the power of the tongue, the power of our mouths. He's going to focus on two main aspects, with God, with others, praying and preaching. Seems pretty simple, but you'll see there's a lot being said here in those few words. So Paul begins, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, I remind you that Paul's not saying this in a vacuum. He's not actually moving to a new section. He's continuing what he's already been saying. He's called the Christians to realize who they are in Christ and to put to death sin and to put on Christ-like character. 
filled with the word, and then he started to focus in on the house, right? The different roles you have to live out. And as I tried to show last time, these demands, these duties are, are pretty demanding. I mean, wives to submit, husbands to love without bitterness, children to obey in everything, and, and parents, you need to raise up your kids without discouraging them. And don't forget the slaves. The slaves who might be in an unbelieving household are still called to obey in everything with all their hearts. And the masters who might have unbelieving slaves who want to take advantage of merciful uh, masters, well, they're still called to be fair and just. This should all lead them to their knees saying, we can't do this without God. We can't do this with the help, without the help of our Lord. So that's why I was talking about the need to be filled with the Spirit to fulfill these things. Amen. And so it's normal that Paul will move on right now and say, you need to be praying about this. See, when we look at verse 2, we realize the main focus is prayer, and everything else are qualifiers of the prayer. How do you pray? Steadfastly. How you pray? Watchfully. How you pray? With thanksgiving. But it's all about prayer. And that's what we want to break down. How do you pray? Continue steadfastly. It's a compound word in Greek. It, it can connects two words together. First, this idea of perseverance, right? Continue in prayer. But there's also a, an idea of with strength, with power, with passion. So it's not just continue praying, but continue with passion. James kind of hits the, the hell in the, on the head when he says, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. See, in that little part of the verse, there's the word effectual, which is energon in the Greek, like energy, and then there's fervency, fire, jealous, uh, zealous, and, and you put it together, and that's kind of what Paul is getting at when he says, once again, continue steadfastly. Yes, continual, but with a fire burning brightly in your prayer life. Now, we might, for some of us, have a good prayer life, but to say that it's always a big burning fire, maybe not as much. There's most moments in our lives, right, trials or tribulations, or people we care about suffering, you are passionate about prayer. Morning, evening, night, you are in prayer. You might be in fasting, spending the weekend in prayer, but then the things get resolved, or life gets back to normal, and then the fire starts dying down again, doesn't it? But even more than that, there's also a sense that the reality of the Christian life right now is that not many Christians actually do pray every day or one or two hours every day. One, two hours, Martin? Yes. Rare and rare. Yet, here's Paul saying there has to be a big, burning, fiery prayer life. And he even says that you need to be watchful in it, in your prayer life, but also to keep the fire going, to keep it burning bright. That seems pretty demanding, Martin. That, it's Paul, right? Don't, don't forget. It's it, actually the Holy Spirit. But then how? Right? It's a good question to ask. How can it burn this brightly in a con constant state? And I, I think, again, the verse tells us. It hints at least at, at three, if I could say, charcoal pieces that keeps the fire burning. The first one is this idea of just, just pray. It sounds really simple, right? Just pray. Yeah, but I'm busy, and a week has gone by, then, then do it now. But I'm at work. Pray during your break. Pray while you're going home. You see, we, we have access before God all the time. Pray. You haven't? Do it now. It's that simple. I think it really starts with this idea of just pray. Do it. But it, 
The second one for me will be the watchfulness. Watchfulness in the sense of being attentive to the needs around us. Attentive to the fact that there are so many people, and if you take the time to listen, you will have needs to pray about. We have prayer lists in this very church. You take that home. I know a brother. When he started his Christian life, his pastor told him, you should pray every morning just to start off on the right track. And he tried to do that. But it was a beginning in his Christian life, so he prayed five minutes until he decided, I, I want to have more and a better prayer life. So he took the prayer sheet home. And he decided to pray at least one of the subjects each day. And that also meant that he had to be informed. If you want to pray for the different contacts, the different unbelievers that people have mentioned, well, then you have to be informed about that. You go see that brother and say, dear brother, um, what's going on with that work call you were talking about? And you'll be able to witness to him again. That information kept feeding his prayer life. And then he added the entire prayer list every day. See, it, it's that kind of watchfulness that I think it's part of our prayer life. That attentiveness. What about being watchful about our brothers and sisters around the world? We are blessed right now that there's organizations that tell us what's going on for our brothers and sisters around the world. You can know that in Nigeria, for months and years now, terrorists have been going all over the country, attacking Christian villages and killing people and kidnapping people. You read these stories, you'll be prayerful. Being that kind of watchfulness, but even about your life, your coworkers, your neighbors, stop and just say, how you doing? And you'll be surprised how many prayer requests you might have, even if they don't clearly say, here's a prayer request. This is, this is what Paul is getting at when he tells Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. See, that includes everybody, not just believers. So again, a watchfulness attentiveness of everybody around us, the time just to say how you're doing will make it so you will be supplicating and interceding for those all around you, for all people. He even adds, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I don't think I'm telling you anything new by saying that our present government and the province we are in, the city we're in, is very moral. And they want to impose all these laws and these ways of doing things. If that doesn't lead you to prayer for the children, for yourself, that's the kind of watchfulness I believe that we should be getting at, that we should be focused on. You're attentive to just a few of these things, you will have a fire prayer life. And not, not about the how you pray, but the fact that you will be continuously praying and interceding and having many reasons to pray for. And this takes me to the last uh, charcoal piece, which I would say I saw is the fuel. Thanksgiving, like Paul says, with thanksgiving. It is what should fuel the prayer life as well. And be careful because 10% fuel for 90% wood, won't burn that bright. If you're only focused on everything you need with a little of God, thank you, just pushed all around it, something's missing. And the one example I could give you is think of Paul himself. Many times he'll tell these churches how he prays for them. He'll tell them how he's interceding in their favor, and he'll start by saying how he's thankful for what God's doing in their lives. 
See, there's much thankfulness in Paul's prayers for each of these churches. It fueled and helped excite his prayer life. It's one thing to be praying for Brother X going through cancer and he's suffering, and you're feeling his pain, it's great, but there's something more powerful that will continue in prayer, will let you get discouraged in your prayer life if you're also thanking God that he's sustaining him during this time of trial, that he's looking more and more like Christ through this trial. See, this gratitude will keep you persevering in your prayer, but only focusing on, Lord, please do, and God isn't, might get you discouraged. But God, please do, and you are doing this, and you are doing this, and all things will work together, keeps you going in your prayer life. So I believe all these qualifiers put together will keep the fire going very strongly for the Colossian church and for ourselves. And from this passionate prayer life, Paul will then turn and ask for a special request for himself. Oops, I made a mistake. I forgot um, that I wanted to mention how when Paul presents uh, prayer to the different churches, he takes the time to mention the need for thanksgiving as much as for requests, as we can see for these two examples I'm going to show you. He says first to the Philippians, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it's even more beautiful for the Thessalonians because he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So he starts with gratitude, talks about the request, goes right back to gratitude. That is what will lead them to a better prayer life. And that will lead Paul to say, at the same time, as you're passionately in prayer and gratitude, pray also for us, right? Me and my team, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. I love that last part because in the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and of course Philemon, Paul will talk about the fact that he's a prisoner, but he'll always mention that he's a prisoner of Christ. It's not about the Roman government. It's not about the Jewish nation that put him in jail. No, no, no. It's all about Christ. I'm here for him, and it's about him. I love that his focus is Jesus, even when he's in prison. It really speaks, doesn't it? So what's his prayer exactly? Well, that God may open to us a door. That's, that's typical Paul language. Open door, opportunities. He wants opportunities. See, he tells the Corinthians that in Ephesus, there's an open door, but with opposition, though. He mentioned that there are people trying to kind of stop him from doing the work, yet he sees it as an open door. And when you think about an open door in opposition, you should think of Paul right now as he's writing this, Acts 28. Acts 28, where Paul is in prison in his home, and he has Roman guards chained to him 24-7. That's opposition. And yet, God keeps opening doors for him. The, the Jewish nation that's there come to him, and they haven't been tinted by the other Jewish nation. They, they're asking Paul, what is this Christian faith? Wow, blank slate. He gets to tell them the truth. Plus, you have a certain Onesimus. Remember that runaway slave? And through the providence of God, he's the reason why we have a book of Philemon. That's, that's pretty amazing. That's an open door while Paul is enchained in his house. So that's what God does with Paul. 
He even tells the Philippians that even though he is in chains, he has been preaching the gospel to the Praetorian guards, the bodyguards of Caesar. He even talks about how the Caesar, the house of Caesar, they got to hear the gospel. He's in, he's in chains in his house, and the house of Caesar is hearing the gospel. That's God opening doors even through opposition. That's Paul's reality. And yet, what I find fascinating is this is what's going on right now, right? Acts 28, while he's writing this. There's already open doors, and Paul says, pray that God may open to us, in a sense, more doors. Right? That's what he's saying. There's already doors opened, and he wants more. Doors are not enough. Bust the walls open. I want more people to hear the gospel. I want to be more used by God. And it connects very well to what he was saying in prayer. See, he called the Colossians to pray with fervency, with passion. And it's not do that and I'll do something else. He says, do that and I want to serve God more. See, you should pray more, I will serve more. What he asks, he does. That's a good teacher. He practices what he preaches. He wants more doors for what? For the word, to declare. Because again, it's, it's all about the mouth. Right? Like I said, this entire text is just covered in mouth language. He talked about prayer, and now he's focused on the open door being the word, being able to declare, declare, he says, the mystery of Christ. What is that? Well, he doesn't tell the Colossians here, but he does tell the Ephesians. Remember, sister epistle, in which he tells them, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. That means chapter 1 and 2. See, that's part of the mystery of Christ. And he says he got that from revelation. Christ himself came to give him this message. What is it, Paul? I hope you want to know. Yes? (laughs) When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, we should say an amen because we're all Gentiles here. This is us. That's the mystery of Christ. This is the the promise given to Abraham that he would bless all the nations. How do he bless? Faith that gives justification. What was given to Abraham is now for all. It was hinted at all through the Old Testament. Think of Tamar. Tamar, remember her, the uh, daughter-in-law of Judah, who then became the wife of Judah. Through it, all the line of Judah has come. She was a Gentile. She became part of Israel, and even the lineage of Jesus. Or think of Rahab from Jericho. Again, a Gentile. And she became part of the lineage of Jesus. Or, of course, think of Ruth, with her own story being a story of the gospel for the nations. This is what hinted at throughout the Old Testament. The little times, the, the veil was removed a little bit. And here's Paul saying, my mandate was to rip the veil completely open and say, all Gentiles, this is for you too. That's what he wanted to do with those big, burly Roman soldiers pagan idolaters who worshiped other gods and like to kill people for their gods, you need to understand about Jesus. That's what he wanted more and more. 
is already happening. He wants more of it. That's remarkable. That's Paul. He then continues his prayer request, actually. When we get to verse 4, we have to realize he's still in prayer mode. He's still asking for something. Asking that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. To make clear is literally to put light on something. To shine a light on something that's dark. Again, this mystery that he was talking about. That it wasn't clearly revealed yet. It was slowly being shown through the writings of Paul and his preaching and the apostles. He wants to put light on it. Now, what I find very interesting is when you connect it back to what he says to the Ephesians. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden from ages in God who created all things. If I understand this right, he's saying he's already doing this. He's already bringing to light the mysteries of Christ. He's already succeeding and working out what God has given him as a mandate. And yet he's praying, saying, I want to do more of that. So when he gets back to it, he says, I'm asking the Colossians, pray that I can do it better. Yet he's saying to the Ephesians, I'm already doing pretty well. I love the humility of Paul. The great theologian of all Christian history, I mean, he got his theology directly from Jesus. Nobody can say that. He got it from Jesus, and he still says, I need help and your prayers to do a better job at shining that light. Shouldn't that humble us saying, even if you know your word, you've been Christian for decades, and you've been sharing the gospel to thousands of people, you still need God's help. You still need God's help. If Paul needed it, we did too. As he says, there's a way that he ought to speak. Again, that, that mouth language, right? It's all about the sharing with the mouth. And ought is really an idea of necessity, obligation. There's a specific way it has to be shared, a specific way the light has to be shined upon this mystery of Christ. Keep that ought language in your pocket. Keep it in your mind because he will come back to it when he gets back to the Colossian church. Right now he's on himself and saying he wants to make sure that he's doing exactly, saying exactly the way God wants him to. And again, Paul, direct revelation saying, I still need help in this. Um, I think we do too. So he then moves back. Nope, again, I forgot something. I forgot to mention that in Ephesians, Paul also asked them to pray for him. See, after he's done talking about the armor of God, he then focuses on prayer, saying, pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, again, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Again, there's a sense of there's a specific way, and he needs help to do that. Even though he told the Ephesians, I am doing it, he's still at, at the end saying, please pray that I continue to do that. And I don't know if you, you realize some of the words we, we read in Ephesians look very similar to what we just read, right? They were called to be alert and persevere in prayer, he asked them to be watchful and continual in prayer. And then to pray for himself, to speak with boldly 
and, and with the right, right words to share the gospel. Now he moves on and back to the Colossian church and asks them to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now here again, I'd say that there's mouth language being used, but it's more subtle. To walk is a way of life. It's the way you conduct yourself in day-to-day -day existence. And he talks about towards the outsiders, the unbelievers. That's your testimony. It's your language of life. But even in that sense of walking towards the, un the outsiders, there's a sense of you're, you're going to talk with them too. You're not just going to walk around them, you're going to talk with them too. So again, language is involved in what he's saying when he talks about walking in wisdom towards the outsiders. I mean, on one side, you could be saying Jesus all day to the, your coworkers, but if they see you seem being lazy and selfish in the way you work, you're kind of destroying your testimony. But on the flip side, you might be a hard worker, but then you criticize your boss. Well, you're again destroying that testimony part. So both your life and your talk is involved in the walking, and he says, in wisdom. Well, wisdom is applied knowledge with knowledge. The knowledge of the word of God. What God has told us to be. How God has called us to walk. A bit like Peter tells us. Since therefore Christ, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, that I see as circumcised the flesh, has ceased from sin. Not in the sense you never sin again, but in the sense you've circumcised the flesh and it doesn't dominate your life anymore so as to live for the rest of the time in the body, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is the way you're supposed to live. He continues, for the time that is past suffice for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and laws, idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Right? There's two things showing up in this text. One is you're a new person and you're supposed to walk like that new person. Again, Paul bringing us back to the fact that we are seated in the heavenlies, to the right side of Christ, and that new identity leads you to walk a certain way. That, that's where you walk in wisdom. But there's also the sense of maligning. See, I believe that when Paul calls the Colossians to walk a certain way, it's because he knows that there's a critical eye from these outsiders. See, unbelievers have always had a critical eye upon the church. To the point that in the second century rose up guys called apologetists, people who defend the faith, because there were others, philosophers, and others who would point the, the finger at Christians and say, they're the reasons why we're suffering right now. And look how weird they are. They eat bodies and drink blood. And they marry their brothers and sisters. And then Christians have to stand up and explain. No, you see, that's called the Lord's Supper. It's just so we can remind ourselves that Christ died for us. And we call ourselves brothers and sisters because we are all the same family in Christ. So they had to explain these things because there was always a critical eye. And it keeps going to this day. Now, today, we don't have to defend the Lord's Supper, maybe. But we do have to defend our lives and the fact that we want to live in a way that honors God. Well, you're just hateful. You just have hate speech. No, we, we denounce sin. So it, it's still there, and so it, it's still a call for us to walk in wisdom, as Paul says, and Paul prayed for also 
See, he called the Colossians to pray for him because he already prayed for them. He told them in the beginning, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. See, walk in wisdom, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, very similar. He continued praying, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. That's among the outsiders. And increasing in the knowledge of God. More you do God's will, more you will understand God's will. But this is what he's calling them to. When he calls them to walk in wisdom, he's, he's prayed for them to do that. In a way that the outsiders can see, and they can see also how they're making the best use of their time. And that big, long expression, actually, can be reduced to one single word, redeem. It's the same word used in Ephesians when he says, redeem the times because the days are evil. Using the same kind of wording here, redeem the time. Buy it back because you were brought back at a great price. And that's what he was getting at for the Colossians. That's what you put to death, these things, because you were redeemed. You belong to a new master. He, he told the earthly slaves that they have to obey in everything their earthly masters because they have a divine one they have to obey in everything. And so you live with that kind of knowledge and you redeem the time, recognizing that this time, everyone, every aspect of it is for God. As, this doesn't mean super hyper mega spirituality. Yes, I made that word up. In which, if you're not praying, then you're reading. If you're not reading, then you're preaching. No, there's a sense of living the Christian life. And in that life, you realize that you're already seated at the right hand of Christ. You see, you're already in fellowship with God, and this plays out in every aspect of your life. A constant reality that you are always in that fellowship with God, and so every moment should have that. And if we're honest, there's those moments where maybe not as much. And that's when we need to come back and say, wait, I need to redeem this. I need to buy it back again and come back to that. You see, again, this is all about the outsiders, though. It's a good Christian truth, but it's also focused on the outsiders. Keep that in mind when we get to verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's again that mouth language. It's all about what you say. And it says that we must be gracious in our speech. What does it mean? Because grace is unmerited favor. So does it start with the mouth or with the heart actually here? To have a gracious disposition, a compassion, a mercy, a kindness in our hearts for the outsiders who live in sin and debauchery, like Peter said. To have a kind of gracious heart will change the way you speak with them, with the gracious words. I believe that's what Paul is getting at here. The gracious heart will lead to gracious speech. They will be able to recognize if all you're doing is condemning them for their sins from a high and lifted up mountain of morality, or if you're doing it as a sin who also needs grace like they do. They'll recognize if it comes from a gracious heart or a condemning heart. So having this gracious speech is greatly important for the outsiders. But then he's, he, I also like what J.B. Lightfoot says. 
the conversation of Christian must not only be opportune as regards the time, right? Redeem the time. It must also be appropriate as regards the person. You know, when you recognize that each person you're talking to is one made in the image of God who had bro- broken that image by sin. When you have that kind of focus, it will change the way you speak with them. And you will also need to do it seasoned with salt. What does that mean? I can tell you I spent a lot of time trying to make sense of this one because every commentator goes different ways. Many were focused on what he, say, he says in Ephesians. Let no corrupting talk, right? Salt takes away corruption. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. It sounds similar, but the context is different here. Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 is all about church life, the interaction between Christians. But as I said in our text, it's about the outsiders, interactions with them. So it's not the same kind of talk. I don't think it's the same thing. I don't think it's about not having foul language among unbelievers. It's something else, I believe, when he says to have seasoned with salt because he points to the fact that it's about answering each person, being able to answer their questions or their, their, their uh, doubts or, or their attacks. So I don't think seasoned with salt is all about not being corrupt in our speech. Others have focused on the fact that the philosophers of old used this expression of salt and being salty in the way you spoke in the sense of being witty or interesting and funny in your speech. Well, the fact that Paul said to the Colossians, don't fall into philosophy, I I don't think that he wants them to go back to that way of thinking. So I don't think the season with salt has to do with being funny when you talk to unbelievers. The last option I saw is focused on the word seasoned, which works the same way that we do. To season your food is to prepare it by putting spices on it before you cook it. The the basic, it's it's nothing more complicated than that. You season with salt your meat because you're preparing it to cook it. And I believe Paul is saying, be prepared. Be prepared so that. See, here's why you should be prepared. You may know how you ought to answer each person. To me, that makes more sense. You you are to be prepared, well-equipped, know your word so that you may know how you ought to to have the right kind of answer, the right kind of truth to answer their questions for each person. Peter talks the same way as well. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being what? Prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Very similar to what Paul is saying, right? But that's not it. He continues also. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, like grace. Having a good conscience, walk in wisdom. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ Maybe put to shame. It's like he's saying the same thing as Paul, but in reverse. Don't anybody tell you that Peter and Paul don't say the same thing. They're saying the same thing, but differently. The same Holy Spirit is guiding them in what they wrote. And when we come back to our text, we see Paul saying the same thing, but just in the flip side. The way you're going to walk, speak with grace, and then be prepared. 
Be prepared to be able to answer these people who question your faith. Because, like I said, we live in a time where people will point the finger. They'll say, your God, in the Old Testament, called Israelite to massacre an entire people group, the Canaanites. And we shouldn't just hum and say, um, that's, that's the Old Testament. Let's focus on the new. You, you can't do that. God didn't change. It's the same God who revealed himself in the old is the same God of the new. He is a holy God, a righteous God, a just God. He's also a merciful God and a patient God. He gave the Canaanites 450 years to repent. And not say they didn't know. Abraham, 450 years before, was in their land. He walked all over the land like God called him to, living his faith. Plus, they have a guy named Melchizedek. Remember him? A king and a priest of the Most High God? They had a witness. 450 years to know that they should repent. They didn't, they got worse. By the time Israel comes into the land, they're massacring their children to the fires of Moloch. They're taking their children to be temple prostitutes. They were very evil. God was just in his judgment. And we should not shy away from saying God is a just God as much as a merciful God. He will judge, but guess what? He took this judgment and put it all on his own son for you. See, Christ died for your sins. He didn't need to do that. He didn't owe us anything. We don't deserve forgiveness and mercy. So yes, we should not shy away and be able to defend these things, explain these things, be prepared for those who point the finger. And yes, it should lead us to pray and say, Lord, I I don't know where to start. Help me. I dare to say that this entire text before us, these commands that he's giving to the Colossians, should bring all of us in one way or another, to one degree or another, to at least recognize a need to change. Who doesn't need a, a prayer life with a bit more fire or perseverance in it, or even thankfulness? I, I know I need more thankfulness in my prayer life. Who, who doesn't need to walk in more wisdom among us outsiders? Who doesn't need to be more prepared to be able to explain your faith to those around you or to new believers? Who doesn't need to redeem the time more because he let it go a little bit? Like I said, I think there's a sense where what Paul is calling the Colossians is calling all of us this morning to recognize or confess and in a sense repent and turn to want to change in one way or another. So let us pray for the Lord to help us. Father, you are merciful and you are gracious and we are so grateful to be hidden in Christ to know that it's not about do or you will die. It is about do to be like Christ. And that your spirit lives inside of us. So we're not here looking at such attacks and just beating our chest saying we are nothing. Instead, we are saying with hope, help us. Help us to take these words and bring them home with us, Lord. Help us to put more charcoal in the fire and not be satisfied with any aspect of our prayer life because it's for you. It is a fire offered unto you. We should always seek for a greater and more thankful thankful fire offered to you in prayer. Help us to look at every way we can redeem the time, Lord, and never be satisfied that we've let it go. It's all about you. You bought us back at a great price. We belong to you. We say it. We sing it. Let us live it. Lord, help us, I pray. Guide us on this week, Lord. By your light, shine the things that need to change in our lives so we can walk in wisdom 
towards the outsiders. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.